118,997, the number of students enrolled in charter schools in New York City in 2018 to 2019. That enrollment has grown 66% since 2014, despite criticism of the sector from Mayor Bill de Blasio. The number of charter schools authorized in New York City and statewide are capped, and New York City has reached the limit, even as applications for charter school seats continue to vastly surpass the number of available seats. There was no agreement to raise the cap in the last legislative session. Our guest today will discuss the politics, policies, promises, and pitfalls of charter schools. Listen in. Welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the CBC. Thanks for joining us. We've taken a little break here this summer. Maria had a vacation. I'm going away next week. So hope everybody's having a good summer who's who's listening. Did you have a good trip? It was amazing. I was in Greece on the islands. Where else would you want to be in the summer? <laughs> Sounds wonderful. Um, so in case you've missed any of our recent episodes, though, we've had some great ones including most recently we talked about the issue of school overcrowding and use of school space and whether, according to the CBC and their exhaustive research, it makes sense for the city to be building as many new schools as it's building. So check that out if you missed it. And we're continuing today with the theme of education during the summer as we lead up to the next school year. As Maria said in introducing today's episode, we're talking about charter schools today. Before our recent summer episodes on education, we've had some other great ones, so you should check those out if you've missed them, and make sure to subscribe to What's the Data Point wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always find episodes at the CBC and Gotham Gazette websites. We've had some great conversations over the last few months about rent regulations in New York, uh, for hire vehicle policy, the new city budget, and lots of other topics with some great guests, and we continue that today and today, we are happy to be joined by James Merriman, the CEO of the New York City Charter School Center. Thank you for being here. Great to be here. Thanks Welcome. for having me. So before we get into all of what Maria alluded to, just a little bit about who you are, where you come from. Sure. I um, was a lawyer by training uh, and an unhappy lawyer by <laughs> training, and that's a large group of people. Um, and when the charter school law passed back in 1998... Um, they gave the State University of New York's Board of Trustees statewide authorizing authority, and we can talk more about that. Um, and so they set up a special entity called the Charter Schools Institute to help administer their responsibilities under the law. I became general counsel, then executive director, and then worked my way over to the philanthropic side briefly, and now I am an advocate um, and provide supports as CEO of the New York City Charter School Center. So you've been there since the beginning. Been there since the beginning, yes. In fact, sometime in August, and I think the date may have vanished into uh, the depths of history, the first charter school 20 years ago will have opened its doors uh -huh. on one of these days. Oh, interesting. What's serendipitous timing for yeah, us? Yeah, how about that? We're going to we're gonna have to check that out, actually. Let's not let it fall into the... The forgotten history. Um, so you've been you've been in the charter school work since it started in New York. Yes. Did you know back then that you were drawn to that? I mean, did, was that something where you said, "I want to be part of this charter school movement"? I didn't know a lot about it. Um, I was interested in government. I thought I could use my legal skills as a entire new policy and legal area was created, and it was fascinating hmm. work building all of that. Um, but my parents were both professors. Um, I thought I was going to be a professor. It's all anybody did in my house. And the notion of being involved in education and giving all children the ability to participate fully in our civic, political, and economic life uh, is very important to me. It was then, and it's what still animates me today. What is the mission of the Charter School Center now? The mission of the Charter School Center is to provide supports and advocacy for charter schools so that one day all children in New York will have access to a high-quality school. Obviously, we work with charter schools, but we're just as concerned, ultimately, that all public schools work well and that all children have them. And we do our work by providing key supports to them as well as advocacy working with the state legislature, 
the city council, the mayor's office, and every entity that charters interact with. Is there a formal relationship with the city? Is it... Is there is there sort I mean, of anything that's we certainly work with them every day, and this is one of those things that I think gets lost. Um, we worked with obviously Mayor Bloomberg and Joel Klein very closely, um, but when Mayor De Blasio came in and Carmen Farina became Chancellor, we continued to work with the department, um, and in many ways collaboratively, and sometimes even more collaboratively than when Mayor Bloomberg was in office, oddly enough. Interesting. So having seen it over 20 years, has the mission of charter schools changed? Have, did, you, did you know back 20 years ago that anything close to what exists today would wind up being the case? How do you look back at that arc? You know, it's, it's funny because you don't remember what you <laughs> right. don't remember. Right. And so... You're wondering whether you're placing yourself back there with knowledge that you didn't really have. I think it it was such an upstart revolutionary movement um, that I don't think we thought we'd be where we are today. In terms of function, I think things have changed to some degree. Um, I think the initial idea was that these schools would be labs of innovation. They would educate the kids in them and were responsible for that and accountable for that, but that they wouldn't necessarily grow and expand beyond that. I think, though, as time went on, as they succeeded, as parents demanded more of them, as educators wanted to start more charters, They've become a significant part. Obviously, your number of the day represents about 10% of students in New York City. We are larger than Syracuse, Buffalo, Rochester combined by a significant amount. Um, We're bigger than Denver um, in total students. So the notion that we are in some ways, a partial replacement than just a spur on the system. And I wouldn't say replacement, but a parallel alternative for some portion of students. And what that portion is, I mean, people have lots of answers, right? There are some people who would say we should not even be the size we are. And then there are people who say the natural growth is until parents stop wanting Hmm. more charter schools. Right. And I think what's interesting. And I'm agnostic about that, ultimately. Yeah. Being a parent, I'm sort of more sympathetic to parent arguments than I may have been (laughs) in the past. But I mean, I think the numbers are kind of are very clear. And I I look at them until actually this very podcast. But the growth, as we said, has been 66 percent in just, you know, Mayor de Blasio's time in office, essentially, Um, while traditional public school enrollment has actually been declining in the same period by about 34,000 students. So there is a very real demand here. Um, for charter school services. And I think at this point, like you said, if it's 10% of enrollment, it's sort of an established block within the system. Um, Something I want to probe a little bit, because the data really are fascinating when you look at them here, is that the cost per student at charter schools is significantly less than the traditional public schools. So let's unpack the reasons for that a little bit. I think first that it would help people to know um, how charter schools are funded and how you get funding from the state and the city and how that differs from traditional public schools. Right. Um, The way that New York State set it up is that they set in law basically a sum, and it's a large fraction of the operating dollars per pupil that the district spends. And that money follows the child, is, is brought over. The district has to transfer that money. But it's important. It's based on actual enrollment. It isn't based on account day. This is one of these things that people just tell me, well, you guys get to keep the money if the kid leaves. We don't. It's based on a week-to-week enrollment formula set forth in regulation. Um, And so that money transfers over based on, again, the amount of expenditure that the district has in operating costs. And it it is a fraction. But by that, let's be clear, it's a relatively large fraction. 
In addition, of course, there are in-kind supports that are very important that the district provides. Transportation, some book aid, some other uh, aid. And then the other large one, of course, is for those schools that are co-located. They receive that space rent-free. That is now written into the law, the result of a deal in 2014. Um, and they receive security, maintenance, um, and utilities rent-free as well. Uh, so that's that. Then finally, there's, well, not finally, there's special ed aid, but let's not get into that. We'd be here all day. Um, we get our title funding directly from the state, just as any school district does. That comes from the feds ultimately, of course. And then there's rental assistance. And that is basically a per pupil amount that schools are eligible for if they started after 2014 or provided grades for the first time after 2014 and asked the district for co-located space or free space in a third-party building, and the district declines to provide it. And that is maxed out at about, not about, it is 30% of the per pupil. The per pupil this last year was about $15,000. And so do the math, it's around $4,500, the rental assistance up to. And we can talk more about it. Yeah. I mean, I think there's so many things to get into today. We want to be careful about our time. But sure. um, but the the whole space issue has bubbled up a lot as, you know, per this conversation, charter school sector has grown so much that the space crunch has been an issue. But then you also had those, you know, pulls and pushes with Mayor de Blasio, who hasn't necessarily been so welcoming or interested in finding space. A lot of that seems to have cooled. Um, but coming back to Maria's question on the cost, yes. is one of the big reasons that the per pupil cost at charters is lower because of labor costs and a lack of uh, unionization? I mean, when you say cost, I tend to think of in, in, in revenue that they receive but there's no doubt that the labor model is different in some fundamental ways. We do not have a defined – we can. that Schools can choose to enter into the defined benefit pension plan. The vast, vast majority do not. They've found it ruinous if they do. Um, and then – so that's one big thing. And the second big thing I would, I would think is that as a young movement um, – we have a younger workforce, and while our teachers are generally paid a bit above the UFT scale based on seniority and, and credentialing um, in order to attract teachers, um, still the, that whole group of people is at the lower end of the salary scale because of the limited seniority they have. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll come back to the workforce a little bit, but I think we should say at this point, we gave the number of student enrollment, but that's in about 235 charter schools. That's that's this last year, and I uh, I meant to look it'll up be, the number of how many more. are opening, but it's a significant number that mm -hmm. are opening this year. And those um, are concentrated in some geographic areas. They are. Um, Central Brooklyn, Upper Manhattan. And the Bronx, particularly, though, the South Bronx and more the western side of, of the South Bronx. We have some schools in Queens, but there are whole areas of Queens that we don't. And obviously, they tend to be concentrated in areas uh, where there are students of color um, and where there are mostly families who are low income. And why did that happen? Why, is, why, why are the concentrations of charter schools in those areas? Ridden into the law and certainly ridden into the ethos of the charter school movement as it exists in New York City. And, and it's very important to note that the notion that there's a national charter movement, I, I think, is a misnomer. It just really isn't. Every, every state is different and even some cities are different. The ethos was that we would help those students who are in need and who are at risk of academic failure and who historically have not been well served. And so that's why you see those concentrations there. It's also, frankly, there are some schools that do have significant middle income uh, and, and white parents, um, both. Um, but really, the vast majority, I think the latest number is something like 90% are, are low income. 
Yeah, and and the numbers I'm looking at are uh, over 90% black or Hispanic yes. student population. Yeah. Um, and I'm sorry, I misspoke. I think it's closer to 80, 82%. Low 82% low. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And um, is the based on where you're at now, is the goal of the charter sector, charter movement in New York to just continue to grow? I mean, there's obviously a big um, ceiling that's been hit in terms of the state uh, legislation authorization, but is the goal, let's let's be half the school system as opposed to 10%? I wouldn't say the goal is any specific number. The goal is to reach a point where you know, we no longer have parents who aren't getting a seat if they want one. Um, and I don't know what that number is. I'm going to tell you, though, it is well, well short of 50 percent. I, I just don't see that happening <laughs> uh-huh. in any realistic thing. Lots and lots of parents are happy with the district school they're sending their child to. And that's wonderful. I wish everyone were happy. I mean, if you, I had my druthers, we wouldn't have a charter sector. But, <laughs> well, that's but, interesting. But, but that's but, the flip. But, that's the flip but, side of the demand, right? Is if yeah. the, if there are if there are parents who are attracted to district schools, the charter school wait lists would be lower, and the room or necessity for growth would be less. Yes, and I so think that's right. You'd be happy to see the district schools improve to a point where uh, the demand for the, your charter schools is, is lower. I'm agnostic on uh-huh. what is what kind of school is a good school because you know who else is agnostic? Parents. Parents, yeah. Parents don't give. So what's hoot. the issue? What's the difference? But but can I say yeah, something just following up on sure. your question about goals? The goal is also to have the schools be better. We have charters that are amazing and wonderful, and we have some charter schools that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, right? Um being a charter school is no guarantee of being a good school, and we've got some stinkers out there. So making sure that we have an accountable system, that schools that are not performing well are closed, or if they can improve, that's great too. I prefer that. Um, and then I think the other goal that we have is making sure that as we provide choice to parents, that choice is as accessible as possible. Right, and these get into these issues of what grades we take children, whether we have space for those children who are disabled and receiving special education services. What do we do? Do we have a way to enroll English language learner newcomers who are coming into the country and into the city mid-year? These are complicated issues, as you can see from the ongoing dialogue that the New York City Department of Education is having, and I'm on the School Diversity Advisory Group, so I've been involved in those conversations. This question of who, ser- which school serves what kind of student where is a very complicated and very fraught question, and it's fraught for charters too. So one of our goals ultimately, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say it straight out, in my view, is to work towards a common enrollment system whereby we don't really control our own enrollment. Not everyone agrees with me within mm-hmm. the charter sector on that, but we've been pretty clear about that. Denver has such a system. Chicago has such a system. D.C. has such a so system. So from the parents' perspective. Newark has. It's, it's a parent-friendly it, right. right. How thing. does it work? It's, you know, you have all the options in front of you and you make exactly. a choice. It works know. very much like the high school admission system, which, by the way, is what all these other systems were based on. Right. The work that. Uh, that Al Roth did right. and so to the earn universe his Nobel of, Prize. Yeah, so the universe of choice is both charter and traditional exactly. schools together. And, and we have a set of rules, and it may take some change to the Charter Schools Act, that allows the district to assign students mid-year to a charter. Their choice. They don't have to accept the assignment to a charter. So I want to come back to this notion of accountability because when a charter school is founded, there is this charter document yep. that lays out accountability, you know, some accountability scheme in order for the charter to be approved by the state and authorized. And yet a part of what we hear in the legislative debates is, well, there needs to be more accountability in the charter school network. And so you mentioned there are some schools that are not working. Can you give us an example or show us how that accountability 
works in real in real life. Sure. So they're probably talking. I'm quite sure they're talking about different things than academic accountability. For for some reason, um, academic accountability is has never been much of an issue for uh, electeds uh, or frankly the board of regents um, to some degree. Um, but let me talk about accountability, academic accountability or outcomes accountability. Um, basically, right, there are a set of metrics. You promise to meet them. If you don't meet them and you really don't even come close and you aren't advancing towards them, maybe you get a few extra years to do it and, and then you should be closed down. This system has worked pretty well in New York. It has not worked well in other states where basically the view was as long as parents were attracted to you, it didn't matter what you did. That is not the system we set up in New York, uh, and, and I'm glad of it. Um, so that's how it basically works, and it has generally worked. Um, not all the authorizers have been as scrupulous about it. Um, there have been cases where schools have stayed open too long, and I can think of some. And then we always have our friendly state Supreme Court judge who's willing to issue an injunction based on nothing um, because, you know, you shouldn't close a school. Mm -hmm. And frankly, that is where— That's their, their the, thinking. Just yeah, so listeners yes. are clear, you're, yeah. you're saying that sarcastically. Yes. You— I mean, part of the, the model or and also the ongoing criticism of the district school system is that schools that don't perform are not closed. And, and that is – and the New York City Department of Ed, I think, has, has been very clear of late, even more so than under Chancellor Farina, that they're basically – no school should be closed because I think as Chancellor Carranza said it at the state budget hearing um, uh, in, in March – um, he basically said there is no such, no such thing as a bad school. There's only an under-resourced school. So, yeah, perfect. I would, that's where I was going to go back to is sort of what is, in your mind, what's the difference? What, what is the problem with the schools that the parents that are seeking seats in charter schools, they don't want to send their children to the, the district school that they might be zoned? And we should also say of the, I wanted to mention this before, of the 235-plus charter schools, a vast majority are serving elementary age students at this point. But, at this but, point, but, but growing growth, upwards. Right, exactly. Yes. So I just wanted yeah. to make sure listeners know that. A lot of people listening probably are pretty familiar with the charter sector in New York, but just but just to be clear. Um, so that's why it relates to the local district school, because we're talking largely at this point about elementary schools. So they don't want to send their children necessarily to the local district school. They want a charter school seat. Why is that happening? If it's not an issue of resources, what what is your take on why that's happening? So, you know, it, it's hard to say because we have such a wide variety of charter schools that to try to find one thing that parents say. But what, you know, thinking about it and and listen, having listened to a, a superintendent, uh, name I will not disclose, who was talking about the fact that she understands that there are parents who are not sending their kids to the district school. And instead of saying we should shut charters, she's like, we have to listen to these parents. Some of the things are a sense of order, a sense of academic achievement that is palpable and that is you know, infused throughout the day, a, a sense of being open to parents. And I wouldn't say parent input because I don't think the charter sector is known for parent input, but welcoming the parent into the community, which I do think a lot of charter schools do well. And I am struck over and over again that the the district school when I talk with parents and and this is true of some right um, they find it they are alienated I mean there's no other word to put it from their local district school they don't find it welcoming it's a school that did not educate them and they don't want that same pattern for their children now. Then there are parents who adore and love and for good reason their district school. So I, I don't want this to become a beat up on the district 
because, again, the district is so varied and different. But there are clearly some schools that parents find dysfunctional, and they want a functioning school. And safety is a huge issue for parents. It, it is for me, of course, but I take it for granted. It is just a given that my school is going to be safe. Whereas for a lot of parents, that is not a given. And so very often, they may just pick a school out of a sense of safety and security that their child will be well cared for in that school, even if they're not getting a great education. The academic side of it, we're probably too far into this conversation without talking about what you referred to as the academic accountability question that too many legislators don't focus on. This is most often manifested and people talk about in terms of the state test scores, where charter schools significantly outperform district schools on average, even if you take in all the district schools. And if you do a much closer comparison of, like we said, where the concentration of charter schools are compared to close by district schools, it's even more of a gap. What is the, you know, I mean, this question gets thrown around a lot, but at this point that we're talking, what's your latest answer on sort of that secret sauce? What is, what, why is that? And to go back to something else you raised earlier, what, what portion of the answer to this is that issue around student populations? Yeah. So uh, let's come back to it. Okay. But there is a portion on student populations and it's an important one. Again, because they're so varied in approach, but but I think it's it's a rigorous approach to saying while the test scores aren't everything and the state tests aren't everything, you know, they're not nothing either. And we need to make sure that our kids have basic skills in the early grades, or there is no way that we are going to to be able to do complex math and English language arts and history and thinking down the road. So I'd say it's it's a real focus on what is being taught in the classroom. I think they have the ability to um, very often make sure that their chief academic leader, if you call him or her principal, fine, is not involved with the operational aspects of the school. I think the schools that function well make sure their their principals are not filling out mm. forms, um, are not being pulled out of their building for meetings. Um, and, and it's just a focus, a relentless focus on, on the data and then looking and saying, how do we reteach that? How do we teach that better than we have? I mean, my my favorite stat is that in math, three through eight tests, um, for black students, 30% of them are at level four in charter schools. 30%. That's meaningful for those kids, right? Because no one can take that away from them. No one can say, yeah, that's, that's just you know an easy grade that someone gave you. And meanwhile, that same number in the district is 8%. That's a pretty astounding difference. And, you know, right now the district is working with some of our high-quality charter schools um, on things like teacher feedback, which I think some charters excel at, um, on college readiness um, and helping kids after when they're, when they're in college. Um, and we'd like to see those partnerships uh, be not just continued but, but expand upon them. On the other hand... Let's be clear, there are enrollment differences between charters, and they're pretty big differences. I think overmuch can be made of them, but I think not taking them into account is, is, is unfair. Um, charters get their kids by lottery, so everyone in the lottery is a chooser of some kind or another. They have made an affirmative choice. Right, by lottery, but yes. you have to enter the lottery. You have to enter the lottery, right? Right. Um, and, and I think people will tell you that non-choosing parents, and there are those in the high school who don't, is a different group of kids, unfortunately. 
And then equally, they are able to control their enrollment in ways that district schools simply cannot. Um, now, a lot of our schools do backfill, meaning kids who leave, they bring in new kids. But, but they have different approaches to enrollment, at least, let's say, your zoned district school. Because again, right, the conversation that we're having in New York has shown the district, I mean, the district has exclusionary practice, enrollment practices that would make a charter school blush, right? Whether it was the school that the mayor sent his children to, MS-51, or at least I believe one of his kids went there, which until this year literally only provided space to those students who were proficient on the state tests and who were socially and emotionally mature which sounds like private school, which means they basically handpick their students. But so, so we, have this, we have this range of, of accessibility within the system and within charters. Um, and it's, it's the most difficult conversation that exists out there because in the world of charters, we on the one hand want choice and on the other hand, we want equality. And choice is a liberty interest. I mean, not to put this at too high a plane, but it is a liberty interest. And equality is, is, is a different interest. And they're both American interests of great value. And they clash with each other when it comes to student enrollment. They clash with each other on all sorts of, of that, issues. That sure. is correct. Yeah. So one of the things that I always find tricky is coming back to connect to what we were just talking about with um, – something you brought up and we talked about about the origins of charter schools was this question about labs of innovation mm -hmm. sort of morphing into just uh, shadow is not the right word but a separate a separate school system right. you an know alternative. an alternative school system yeah. and so that seems to be one of these central tension points that continues to happen and i know your center tries to do some you know bridge some of this but why aren't the practices that are successful in charter schools being better implemented in district schools? Why isn't there more of a sense of, of harmony, uh, of shared practices? What's the, you know, what's the disconnect there? I mean, I will say this. I think there's more than you, than not you, <laughs> yeah. you yeah. Ben Max, but you the public know about. There are district superintendents working with charter schools you know, today and and over the last years. And I'll say Chancellor uh, Farina was really strong in that. She went and looked at charters, some that she thought she did not like. And Chancellor, you know, Farina knew what she liked and knew what she didn't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she she said, there's good things going on. I may not even agree with everything that goes on in this building, but there are some aspects that I do. Mm -hmm. I mean, a district principal and even our district superintendent, is at the mercy of endless ideas and cross-currents and programs that Central thinks are good for them. And, and so if they aren't, you know, given an impetus from the top and a way to do this, the work, it, it's not going to happen by osmosis. Mm -hmm. Sort of, oh, a charter's next door, it'll just... Right. You know, and so I think if you want to see more of this, the district has to actually look at and decide what they want to do, and we'll try to help them do it. But but what we did learn is we thought at the beginning, oh, charters will be a spur towards improvement in districts. But that's only true if a district wants to improve, to mm -hmm. sound like the old joke about the light bulb. <laughs> um, I mean, I know I, I haven't gotten to know – Chancellor Carranza sort of lens on what makes a good school and, you know, what he looks for when he goes into a school. But for Farina, she talked all the time about the bulletin boards and the clarity in the school and things like that. And from my experience, I know, you know, that those are the types of things that charter schools excel at is clean, clear, you know, orderly, you know what the activities of the day are, you know the routines of the day. Some people say this can be taken too far. Maybe we'll have a minute to, to talk about that in a moment. But, you know, that would make sense to me that sort of her lens, walking into a charter school, she would very often probably find that 
pleasing because of the charter, generally speaking, the charter focus on those types of things. Is that, I mean, is, is yeah, that a I, way of I, I, recapping sort of the- But she also, one of the things that I'm she I'm not saw, discounting it. No, I'm no, no, no. that would make sense to me. That's it, it does make sense, and I agree with it. I, I think one of the other things, though, that she saw was the amount of time and attention towards teacher feedback that high quality charters do. She's a quintessential principal, obviously. Um, and so when she saw people really working hard and systemically on you know, real time, how do we get teachers to pick up on things that they didn't pick up and the kind of supervision um, and assistance that young teachers get in high quality charter schools, I think if I had to pick the thing to emulate, like if I were in the district and trying to emulate, that's where I would spend my time. Well, you just took it exactly where I wanted to go because okay. I was struck by the fact that you didn't, right off the bat, did not call them principals. What did you, chief academic officers, which in and of itself is a very different mindset. You know, I remember many, many years ago, I said, you know, I'm going to read this UFT contract and sort of crack it open and see. And then, of course, the thing for anyone who has not tried similar exercise is 500 pages long. Right. And it's full of restrictions about how teachers can use their time, what they can do, about how you can use a system of sort of continuous improvement when you're already being regulated in such a way. So I think explain, take, you know, take that thread out a little bit longer about how principals work with teachers, how they set the expectations, how they, you know, devise the curriculum, how they work to just improve and keep moving forward. So I'm not an educator, yeah. So, and I'd say you said it about as well as <laughs> I could have, to be honest, Maria. Um, it, it is exactly that. It, it's that focus. And, and I know I should take the bait as a good advocate and pile on about the UFT contract, but my heart isn't in it very much, I'll be honest, because I, I, the contract is often not helpful. But, of course, there was a reason why that provision was negotiated. Some principal or superintendent was high-handed and, you know. So, so the contract, as you will, it's a, it's a Bible of distrust, um, as all contracts <laughs> to some degree are. But this one that has been layered upon and layered upon, it's an archaeology of distrust. And, and that – in. It, that can be very hard for a principal. And I have heard stories about principals who come in as change agents, and we've all heard the stories, and basically are handed their butt um, if they start to really shake things up. I think, though, the other truth is that in schools that are functioning well, and I, I think Michael Mulgrew says this, the fact is the contract tends to recede to the background because the teachers trust the principal. But I think that the bad thing is all it takes is one or two teachers who decide to stand on it that can make it very hard, especially in a turnaround situation, uh, which is why even you know in the district, in all their reform efforts, whether it was renewal or chancellor's district, right, closing of schools was one of the weapons, and replacing the faculty was one of the weapons. Because I think even the UFT has to admit, in a turnaround situation, the notion that you're going to turn it around with all the same people is really, it, it doesn't pass the smell test. It's absurd. Right. But what, what is the model for holding, we've talked about accountability for outcomes, and we know based on the research, the teacher is so central to what those outcomes are. So what is the model for holding teachers accountable in charter schools? So interestingly enough, it's not by the numbers. Um, and this was always the dirty little secret when we went through the battles on value-added measurement. I remember calling around and saying, do you use value-added measurement and do you use it in a particular way as part of an algorithm? And the answer was no one. I mean, they might use it to inform what they're seeing. Like if they see three years of bad outcomes for measures for a teacher, it might make them say, do we need to go back in and look? Are we missing something? But basically, it was based on lots of observations, informal and formal. I mean, principals being in, in classrooms 
a lot. And that is that runs into tension in the district where a lot of teachers view themselves as master of their classroom. And I think one of the cultural things in charter schools is that, in fact, there are no individual classrooms. Oftentimes, especially in high schools in the district, I went to a high school like this, right? It was sort of like a mall. Central provided the heat and the security, <laughs> but each teacher was its own shop. And you cannot have a high-performing school um, where you are working, particularly with low-income students, where that door is closed and every teacher does what they want. You have to establish a common culture, not just a culture of behavior, but a culture of learning that has to be Everyone has to be on board, and that is going to be harder to do in a district. It's not impossible. There are schools that do it well, um, but it is harder to do and easier to do in a charter. And that said, it's incredibly hard to do for anyone. So we're talking with James Merriman, the CEO of the New York City Charter School Center. We've already gone a little past time, but we got to keep you for a few more minutes. You even just got to something I wasn't even planning. We weren't even planning to get to about the about teacher evaluations. We'll we'll have to save that for another conversation. Um, okay, so one of the other critiques of of charter schools, along with the student enrollment question, is also about the teacher uh, churn. And while on one hand, the UFT contract can be cumbersome for, for school leaders and perhaps, you know, have a real effect on teaching and learning, uh, on the other hand, it gives teachers important protections. Charter schools don't have to deal with tenure, for example, um, and, and a lot of the process that comes around trying to move teachers along in some cases. But on the charter school side, there is this question of you bring in teachers, they work really, really hard for a couple of years, they burn out, they leave. Does the sector have a problem with that? Is there a problem with thinking of teachers as sort of disposable, like when you were starting you, to discuss your career, an unhappy young lawyer where you get burnt out after a few years and, and you move along? How do, you, how do you think about that? I think there's an issue there um, uh, around the churn, but I, I don't think it's one that is solved or really implicates the notion of tenure. I think the great number of teachers that are leaving in charters after, say, three to five years are because of the difficulty of the work. Um, and, and they're asked to do a lot, and they do burn out. I think charter schools are trying to figure out how can they keep this sense of urgency and this focus while working with people. And interestingly enough, um, some of the networks have, have gotten better at this as the people who founded them, who were young and single, got married right. and had kids. And suddenly work-life balance was real for that because they worked 60, 70 hours a week. I think their spouses began to say, yeah, that's not going to work for me. So the networks, I think, have an advantage because as a larger workforce of a number of schools, they can now create part-time positions or you know, three-quarters positions, move people between schools. They have more flexibility. They might also have I, like an but, HR department. But where I, I, I think some people, some networks, view this as, as not such a big issue, that this is the model. And as long as they think kids are doing well, if that means that people, most people can't hack it in their view, well, that's the way it'll be. I think others think probably they're not going to have people who work 20, 30 years with them, that they're trying to make sure that they move from an average of, say, three and a half years uh, ideally to, say, six or seven years, because a first-year teacher is more a liability than an asset, just like a first-year lawyer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Back to where we started. <laughs> um, I don't think we could leave this conversation, although in some ways it's refreshing to have a conversation about charter schools without talking that much about Success Academy, but it is the biggest Network, you know, it, it has the most. How many schools. minutes in are we in before we got there? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean that, I, that know, may be a world record in and of is, itself. Right? Um, but you know, you said you said at least once in this conversation, you know, that sort of 
my your opinion and it's not necessarily shared by all the leaders in the charter sector you don't necessarily speak for the entire charter sector even though you lead the charter school center and do a lot of the advocacy work um how do you think about and talk about success academy as you know the marquee network the largest network uh you know is that what how people should think about charter schools in new york how do you think about that i think about it Primarily, this is what I think about, that every day during the school year, there are thousands, you know, upwards of 10,000 now. I don't even know what the number is. Mm -hmm. Almost 20 parents who every day are choosing that school. Yes, some leave. There's no doubt. And, And I think success is pretty clear. It may not be for every student and every family. But lots of families think it's their best choice. It may not even be the ideal school for them, though for some I think they think it is nirvana. Um, And that's how I think about it. Why wouldn't we want that in the mix of schools? And, And once I think of it that way, things get a lot simpler about is it good? Is it not good? Is it too harsh? Is there too much test prep and so forth? I mean, no one, I I don't think, should generally second guess a whole army of parents who say, this works for my child. And there is is one of the biggest discussions happening around charter schools and within charter schools is around the the discipline question. And we've seen... you know, Richard Bury, who used to be in city government, now helping lead the KIPP network, yeah. uh, talk about this a bit. From your perspective and the Charter School Center, is there a real reckoning that needs to happen around, quote unquote, zero tolerance discipline, questions of discipline codes at charter schools? Should that really be left up to individual networks and in schools? How do you think about that conversation that's happening right now? I'd say that reckoning already happened. I'm not saying that the work that that reckoning uh, results in has happened completely or fully in all schools. But the, the, the total focus now is on trying to keep an orderly environment while making sure that you aren't excluding kids, um, either at the front end or at the back end. And discipline is kind of your back end enrollment right? Um, People have revamped not just discipline codes, because I don't think that's really the issue. They've revamped how they think about kids. And, and, And the shift, if you will, is I think in the past the notion was, you know, the children will fit the program. And I think there's a reckoning that and an understanding. We need to make sure the program fits the kids where they are. I think there is a greater appreciation of the kinds of trauma that children bring with them. And I don't think anyone in the charter sector really disagrees with the notion of having a thoughtful and compassionate school. It's, it's just when you get to the details, that's where it gets messy. And this is what we see in the conversation in the city. I mean, it's all well and good to say, oh, we're going to lower suspension rates. But, you know, teachers on the front line know that without real training and no alternative to suspension, all it means is kids will create disorder in their classrooms. Their principal will be afraid to assist them because their principal is, knows that there is a meter somewhere judging how many suspensions, and a superintendent knows that there's a meter somewhere because eventually someone has to go to the city council and say this is the suspension rate and it better be lower. So if that's all you're doing, if, if you're just playing with numbers, that's not the work. And, and the city is having this conversation with the district and it's a good conversation to have and charters are having it as well. Last question for me is, what do you see now going ahead? What are your key policy priorities in the upcoming budget and legislative session, which will be here before we know it? Yes, yes. It's funny being in government that you're already thinking about January as (laughs) if it's just around the corner. Um, 
you know, obviously we will continue to try to convince uh, the legislature that raising the cap um, or at least taking the charters that exist in New York State, of which there are about 99 that can't be used in New York City, allowing them to be in New York, will continue to make sure that the funding formula is fair and then hopefully also uh, work with the legislature if there are issues, and we never really got to this regulatory accountability issue. If there are issues out there, let's have a conversation, uh, engage the sector, um, and let's talk about what you see as the problems, and let's really examine whether the solutions that maybe you propounded are actually going to solve the problem or that they're problems in the first place. So lastly, Maria asked you to outline the sort of legislative agenda in terms of conversations you're helping lead in the city. There's that around discipline. There's the, some of the things around teacher retention and student enrollment we discussed. Anything else that we should know about that you're sort of at the charter school center helping lead or pursuing conversations around? Yeah. I, I mean, one of the the places we spend a lot of our money and time is on working with schools on vamping up their programming for students who are receiving special education services and then multilingual learners. Um, That is something we just made a huge commitment to and uh, we've seen improvements, but it it really takes, as, as everyone knows, and again, this is a conversation in the district as well, right? It takes leadership from the top. It's not enough to have a good special ed coordinator. There has to be a sense of inclusion that your school will have and that leadership has. And we are doing a lot to provide supports and technical assistance as schools embark on that journey. All right. We're going to have to have you back because this was a great conversation. We're just scratching the surface here. (laughs) Thank you for joining us, James Merriman of the New York City Charter School Center. We appreciate the time. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye.